Those Space People, a podcast series of casual cosmic conversations with people working on exciting space projects. Today we have Vinayak Vadlamani with us. Vinayak is currently the chief engineer at Redwire Space and he's currently based in Luxembourg. Redwire Space is in Luxembourg designs and develops robotic arms for satellite servicing and refueling in space manufacturing, debris capture and so on. And Vinayak has a background in systems engineering. So Vinayak, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. As a chief engineer, what's your current role at Redwire Space? So um, chief engineer is a, it's a very recent uh, uh, recent role uh, function that I've uh, taken on, but it means uh, technical assurance for and the final um, final decision key decision making uh, on all matters technical. Uh, within a project uh, and uh, related to technical program or uh, such matters uh, in in simple words. But uh, I come from a systems engineering background, as you mentioned. So I was not really keen on this title, but uh, uh, my management and the faith of the team uh, said that I have enough experience to pull off such a title right now. So. <laughs> So, but yeah, what I do is uh, basically uh, make sure that our reviews, uh, our customers, uh, I still am a lead systems engineer. I um, also carry that function. But in addition, um, I make sure that the key technologies uh, that are involved in the products we make are uh, matured properly and tested properly um, to be sent uh, for qualification and for missions. Okay. Well. Yeah, I mean, I think in the space industry, the titles and everything is not very standardized, right? Right. Like everything else, nothing is really set as a template in the space industry. So if your team believes you can pull it off, of course, you can pull it off. <laughs> yeah. So you started with a systems engineer and then you were a systems lead. So I'm a bit curious, how do the responsibilities keep evolving as you progress uh, in the systems engineering path? Uh, I think it it really depends on where you are, uh, what kind of a technical uh, discipline you are uh, in as a systems engineer. Most spacecraft systems engineers um, usually start from a subsystem or work on a variety of subsystems. Uh, So I started like that. I was uh, a GNC systems engineer first. and I think my career path, uh, I mean, 10 years ago when I was at Team Indus, uh, the former Google Luna Express team, uh, I started as a GNC systems engineer and then evolved to a lander, a lunar lander systems engineer. So I had an overview of uh, all different subsystems like structures, propulsion, uh, communications, uh, OBC, uh, onboard computing, etc. And uh, I think the more time you spend on knowing all systems, the better systems engineer you can be. Um, And uh, there's also the added uh, uh, perspective of looking at things from a high level perspective, uh, I think, which makes systems engineers very prone to management. (laughs) So, uh, and some systems engineers really like that. I don't mind it at all, but I think if you are a systems engineer 
and if you wish to enforce your requirements well, I think you also need some authority in the team uh, to be able to pull that off. So yeah, I, I think that's the evolution of a general systems engineer. But then there's some people who are better at requirements definition, requirements management, and um, especially the scientific or payload side of the community. Uh, you can never be a systems engineer, um, good systems engineer, and no payload insider. Um, so I think you need somebody on the uh, instrument side as well to to know it. And I think that's a fine line where you uh, uh, tread a path of, uh, you know, being a, uh, a subsystem manager or a systems engineer. Yeah. Yeah. So when you mentioned um, you started off as a GNC systems engineer, right? What is the difference between a GNC engineer as a development engineer or, you know, the, a non-systems GNC engineer versus a GNC systems engineer? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, a GNC systems engineer or like a subsystem engineer uh, will have very specific uh, a role to develop the subsystem requirements of that uh, team. So uh, I think, as you know, as a uh, as a program begins, you have uh, high level system requirements, and then you have derived requirements at the subsystem level. So if you call the subsystem the system level as level zero, then the subsystem requirements would be level one, and usually the chief systems or lead systems engineer would give you level one requirements, but then somebody from that subsystem will need to write their own derived requirements, which would be level two or level three requirements. And these are the requirements that usually get verified or tested. Um, so that's what a GNC systems engineer would do, uh, a, a lower level systems engineer would do. So write those requirements and then define them and uh, explain how they will be tested and verified. Okay, that's uh, yeah, that's pretty interesting. But I can totally see. I mean, as also someone working in a company that builds space hardware, there's always this. Uh, I wouldn't say rift. There is uh, <laughs> this challenging conversations between systems engineers and the other engineers. So yeah, it's. Always nice to know what's going on in the in the head of a systems engineer. <laughs> you've been in Luxembourg, at least you've been with Redwire Luxembourg for the past four or five years. What's currently happening in the Luxembourg space scene? How does the Luxembourg Space Agency engage with, I believe there's about 50 or 60 space-related companies and labs and startups and other entities. So mm -hmm. how does the space agency engage with all these? Yeah, I think uh, Luxembourg has... Um the uh, i think the advantage of being very uh, agile uh, the space ecosystem is very young and uh, fastly growing uh, so luxembourg space agency will be celebrating the fifth anniversary this year and there's a summer space festival also uh, which coincides with that but some of our teammates are organizing uh, this year in luxembourg this edition um, so, just on a side note, a small plug, but uh, uh, LSA, as they're called, um, it's basically a small organization of um, um, uh, administrators and 
we um, as Red by Space Europe have a, a program liaison, uh, so somebody who oversees uh, the, the growth and who manages our project, and they have an ESA attaché as well. So there's an ESA a point of contact, a bridge between ESA and NSA, and then on the ESA side, which is where I usually work with, uh, we have a technical um, uh, technical director or um, our, uh, our technical point of contact. Uh, so we normally we I don't uh, in my day to day function don't. Uh, directly interface with LSA, but my uh, my boss does, who is uh, Yaroslav Yavorsky, and uh, he's the general manager of Red West Space Europe. And uh, currently, LSA provides us um, uh, direct uh, funding for a program, which is a Lux Impulse, uh, which is un- falls under Lux Impulse program, which is uh, the flagship program of LSA uh, that has about I think 25 odd uh, programs running in Luxembourg, other notables being iSpace Europe, um, Hydrosat, uh, and many others. So that's, I think, uh, briefly uh, how I would describe uh, what LSA does uh, and how they keep it up. I think there's still uh, a lot of other programs that they run, but I'm only familiar with lots inputs which is the flagship program yeah it's uh, it always seems amazing especially countries with uh, newly established space agencies or um, you know these kind of space entities from the government side even if we compare australia for example or luxembourg they kind of directly leapfrog right they don't have these uh, this baggage of traditional space agencies of you know trying to bring in the industry and trying to engage and you know kind of not play the regulator and the participant at the same time. So, yeah, I think it's a pretty amazing what these, um, yeah, the countries with newly formed space agencies do and how much they can accomplish, which is pretty awesome. So how easy or difficult was the process to get a work permit in Luxembourg for you as a non-EU citizen? Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, uh, actually, it was not that difficult. Um so I think given my timing, which was uh, pre-COVID, uh, those were simpler times. Uh, but uh, you know, it's a very straightforward process, but it involves initially sending paperwork to uh, the Ministry of uh, Interior Immigration uh, Affairs, uh, which is located in Luxembourg City. So you send all your paperwork first, first up. And then you receive it, this document, which is uh, uh, temporary authorization to work. And this, along with two other documents, is all you need to apply for a Type D visa, which is a short-term, 90-day uh, visa for entry. And once you arrive, you convert it into a permanent um, uh, work permit. So it's basically both a residence permit and a work permit that... Uh, then gets renewed every year, basically. Okay. Does this um, set you on a path of permanent residency or citizenship, or how does that progress? Yeah, I think with any European nation, um, there are certain rules of uh, minimum 
uh, amount of uh, residency stay in that country um, uh, you know your um, uh, how you pay your taxes uh, how you conduct yourself and I think this it's similar to Germany in that I think you need five years overall uh, in your residency and then uh, I think there is a path to permanent residency as well as citizenship I think both uh, depending on what you're looking for uh, there is also a blue card scheme which is very popular uh, especially in Luxembourg um, and especially if you're from India a lot of people would ask you if you have a blue card because Amazon is the biggest employer of uh, people from uh, our country in Luxembourg. So uh, I think uh, the big four, Luxembourg is also uh, home to the big four, uh, the finance giants, and they've made uh, many uh, foreign workers aware that there is a blue card. Um, and I think if you meet the blue card requirements, it also aids in your permanent residency. And the blue card is valid for four years. Um, on your first uh, uh, approval. Yeah, looks like it's uh, quite similar to as in Europe or Netherlands or a bunch of other European countries as well. So in in, your, in Germany as well, uh, if you're on a blue card, then it's a faster path to permanent residence. Exactly. Depending on the language, yeah. So long as you satisfy the language requirements and have the certifications, it's either 21 months or... 33 months and yeah and also Germany is uh, trying to uh, bring this new citizenship law which decreases the uh, amount of time you spend in Germany from eight years to five years uh, to qualify for citizenship so hopefully I guess next year yeah next year I guess yeah I guess in the Netherlands for example they already have this five-year limit five-year period However, does it really matter if you are an EU national or a Luxembourg national? Has it ever been an issue for you to find opportunities or to progress in your career as well in Luxembourg? Uh, you mean as a third country national in Luxembourg? Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, no, uh, not really. Uh, I mean, um, I've been very uh, lucky to be with a, a company like Red Bull Space Europe uh, formerly called Made in Space Europe. So it was, a, um, as with somehow in my past, I've always been the fourth guy to be hired uh, in, in these space startups. Uh, uh, so no, not really. And I think even in Europe, um, otherwise, I think uh, it's been a pleasant experience. Um, I have, I, have pre I had previously been to Europe when I was working in India as well. And I think that was too short of a stay, but um, I, I worked with uh, both American and European partners. We were buying some sensors from Germany, for example, and uh, I think uh, uh, that was how I'm working right now. Um, I didn't see a difference. Um, I think within the past three years, I would say that... Uh, it's definitely become much more international. For example, our company has people, about 30 odd people, and the number of nationalities, if you may guess, would, how, how many nationalities do you think uh, we have? Well, it's it's similar at uh, at my company as well. So, and the fact that you're actually asking me explicitly, maybe 10 to 15, I guess. 
Yeah, it's actually 22. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's really diverse. And uh, I think that's uh, what's great about Luxembourg is that, um, or uh, a company in Europe is that there's no ITAR regulations. Um, you know, there's no um, security clearance uh, unless you're working on a classified project, of course, which uh, then you would follow rules. Um, no, but it's a great opportunity for people from, you know, uh, Africa, India, um, other parts of Europe. Um, yeah. So, no, I think to answer your question, um, it's not been difficult. It's been advantageous rather. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess it's not just um, Africa countries with uh, not as much, um, you know, private space activity, but even, for example, in my company, we also have a couple of people from the US and Canada where space activity is much more established and much more, you know, more of a happening place. Mm. So it's, it's always uh, really nice. I guess Europe is probably the only place in the world where you can work with truly multinational teams, multicultural teams in the space sector. So yeah, absolutely. It's good to know that it's the same with Luxembourg. Even as far as I've seen, uh, the the most stringent requirement perhaps I have seen is more than the nationality. Is for example, if you're in a sales role or you know if you're talking to a lot of local suppliers, then it's mostly the language requirements. But otherwise, uh, yeah, it's also something very similar to what I've observed. So nice to know. And. Uh, so yeah, um, circling back a little bit to the systems engineering and uh, talking about it, uh, what kind of skill sets are needed to get into space systems engineering, right? Because you've, uh, right after, after your undergrad, you've uh, gotten into Axiom Space or, uh, you know, Team Indus, uh, the finalist of the Google Lunar X Prize, like you mentioned, and you, were, you, you jumped into the role of a GNC systems engineer. So is there, what kind of skill set do you need to be? Because at the end of the day, even though you're, you're part of the subsystem, you still have the systems engineering mindset. So what kind of skill set is really needed? Yeah, I think it's, um, uh, I, I think uh, because of where we fell um, and Axiom being one of the earliest private space companies, except for, I think only two of space ex existed before that, which was really, commercial, commercial, and uh, uh, kudos to them for the latest round. I think they're doing awesome. Um, uh, the skill set is very um, simple. I think you need um, uh, you need a general understanding of how space systems work, um, some degree of uh, education or some courses in maybe general space dynamics, um, environmental uh, uh, conditions, you know, calculating, um, you know, uh, orbital periods. But I think uh, apart from that, I think you don't need a, a very specific set of technical skills, but you need rather a technical engineering mindset to become a systems engineer. And some of the best syst uh, systems engineers are software. Uh, systems engineers, and you're from a software background, so you know how much uh, systems engineering uh, is involved in that. Um, but uh, how systems engineering is defined today and the history of systems engineering comes from uh, DARPA. Uh, again, uh, they had a huge role, as with everything in space, and they 
literally wrote the first book on on principles of how to organize or abstract systems into different uh, groups or uh, blocks block diagrams and nasa later on i think went on to write something on systems engineering which is called uh, the nasa systems engineering handbook which is um sp7005 if i'm not wrong yeah <laughs> which is where i learned my systems engineering from which is um not a great place to start <laughs> because uh, you will be bombarded with terms and too much of information and yeah uh but i think um in hindsight uh, i think an organization like uh, darpa or nasa can only get you up to a certain point in your career i think as a systems engineer you need to work with all subsystems understand what they do what their constraints are and nothing like getting your hands dirty in a project so be it like a student at like project or you know um a cancer um a erc european robot challenge anything which is um which has two or three different systems coming together and making something uh, integrated uh, which is of more than a certain um uh amount of complexity for a centralized system to handle uh, i don't know if i made it sound too complex but um it's something like that and i think you can you can be an excellent systems engineer if you have simplified tools you don't even need um uh famous um you know systems engineering uh requirements uh, writing uh, tools all you need is maybe Uh, a handbook uh, just to refer to i think in cozy is a great organization um i am a member so um, i think it's you, you talk to other systems engineers also you you learn a lot um the best thing would be to start under somebody who knows systems engineering or um consult someone um as um, as we did back in our day so we have very good um, uh guidance from of course senior ex industry uh uh experts as well as people in the commercial sector and i think then you you can add on on your own on top of that uh, but i can leave you with a couple of links i think they the great places for somebody who's looking to start up in uh, in this field Yeah absolutely I would definitely add it to the description of the podcast episode uh, but what's this organization that you mentioned Incozy can you is it Incozy can you talk about that Sure yeah Incozy is basically the uh, uh International Council on Systems Engineering uh so I N C O S E it was founded not so long ago in the in 1990 I think and they also have certification so they're known for that and um uh there's a few uh, they also have a handbook uh that they release which is written by the community of systems engineers um and um the, i think that gives a lo- lot of clarity on how to write requirements but they don't work only in the space sector they work across uh disciplines and i think a good systems engineer is one who's worked on different sectors um 
And so um, I, I also uh, actually learned about them when I was working in GE, when I was not doing the space project. Um, and it was fascinating because up to that point of time, my systems engineering perspective was very space oriented um, or aeronautics oriented. And then I came to know a lot from the software background because I was writing software. And yeah, they are a fine organization. Um, they are very actively engaging on LinkedIn and I think other platforms. And they also have a membership um, for people from um, developing nations, I think, which is fairly lower than the standard rate. Um, so if you, in case somebody is interested to uh, become a member, volunteer, and they do these working groups where I think 10 or 20 working groups uh, some on requirements definition, some on verification and validation. And systems engineering as a discipline is very detailed, detail oriented. So uh, they've sort of made active working groups uh, like IEEE on each one of them. And um, uh, yeah, it's very similar organization to as uh, you would see an IEEE, but more um, uh, volunteer based. Uh, definitely in less publications. I don't think you'll see any big systems engineering publications or uh, research uh, by them, but they're very practical and uh, uh, outward facing, I would say, in, in the kind of discussions they do. That's pretty awesome. I mean, I, I'm a total believer in uh, incorporating uh, a multi-industry approach, you know, lessons learned learned from other industries into the space sector because often in the space sector, at least at the component level and the software practices level, it's lagging behind, uh, you know, for example, consumer electronics or other established industries. So yeah, this is this is fantastic. I'll also personally take a look at it. I mean, I'm nowhere close to systems engineering, but this seems very interesting. <laughs> Thanks for that. So what kind of tools or softwares or uh, third party or, you know, um, other kind of softwares that you use on an everyday basis for systems engineering? Yeah, so I um, am a bit of a traditionalist when it comes to requirements management. So I use doors next generation uh, only for requirements gathering. Uh, so requirements gathering is uh, a bit like searching for gold in uh, a field. Um, good requirements are very hard to come by. So you need to really develop them. Um, and I also train our group of systems engineers on doors. Um, but I am a self-proclaimed uh, evangelist for a tool called Capella. Uh, that is a tool, um, a model-based systems engineering tool. And I'm a student of model-based systems engineering. I'm still learning it. I think I'm nowhere close to using it in a um, uh, production setting. But basically, just to give you a brief introduction, model-based systems engineering is less text-based requirements tracking and engineering. And it uses um, what uh, what is legacy UML, Unified Modeling Language, so the semantics of a language to but to write requirements and to link them. So um, 
there was already sysml that came from uml uh, in the history of uh, uh, model-based systems engineering and major proponents of this were in both in asia and toyota and in the us uh, many defense organizations um, and automotive industry as well uh, but then uh, thales uh, in france I had a division that was um, using sysml but they um, uh, used another um, context uh, and and they called it arcadia so uh, the founder of arcadia uh, wrote uh, wrote tried to write a better tool for model-based systems engineering and the tool is called capella um, C-A-P-E-L-L-A, and that tool is basically an open source tool, uh, which is built on top of Eclipse, uh, the uh, serious Eclipse uh, language. And um, so you basically write requirements maybe in um, a tool like Doors or um, anything else, Jama, and then you import these requirements into a model-based systems engineering tool, for example, like Capella, and then you can do um, a different analysis of physical architectures, functional blockchains, uh, where you define functions um, and functional relationships. Um, so what it does, it, it abstracts the level of system analysis or functional analysis that a system engineer has to do and uh, instead of this being in documents, it's in uh, software. And uh, uh, it's hard to do it for systems engineering alone, uh, sorry, for a systems engineer alone, because uh, the others have to use the same tool uh, in order to understand the boundaries of their subsystem or how, uh, how their, their subsystem is functioning in general. So I think uh, in in Redbar space right now um, we do still use the legacy uh, doors and documentation environment, but at the right time I'm waiting for a small enough project and uh, high enough risk to totally go to model-based systems engineering and completely digitalize um, uh, engineering um, in in Redbar. Wow, that's uh, that sounds pretty. Yeah, yeah, it sounds it sounds very fascinating though. That sounds like almost a life goal, you know. <laughs> There's a bunch of companies, right? A bunch of startups, at least based in Europe, like Valley Space, which also offer these requirements management and requirements mapping kind of services with their softwares. So, have you used any of these commercial solutions? Um, yeah, I have, um, and that tool in particular, I have, and. Um, as a serious systems engineer, I had my reservations. I don't like dumbing down things in, in the context when um, you're doing detailed design. I think Valley Space is great for non-engineers, non-system engineers to view the systems or tools like Valley Space. But I think for serious systems engineers who need to know uh, boundaries, interfaces, um, single points of failure of their system, or uh, you know, they need to do um, uh, worst case analysis. Uh, such tools fall short. 
and it's not that they're trying they're bad i think they're trying to solve it for a different market and i think as a systems engineer you would really need to have as much visibility of the system as possible and to the um highest amount of detail as possible and the physics remains the same but um when you're trying to test something and something doesn't uh, work i think uh, you'll fall back on uh, a lot of these details um so uh, um uh, i have tried many tools i've tried i keep trying new tools and i think valley space will probably uh, someday also cater to serious systems engineers but i think they're doing a great job uh, for um uh, the outward like the systems engineer to non systems engineering interface i think that they're doing very well uh, and have been i mean both marco and uh, luisa they uh, they I, i know both of them and i think they took good great uh, software and a lovely team of course um uh, apart from that i don't think i've used any other tools but systems engineering in general is i think very trade off oriented and someday if somebody makes a nice tool for that i wouldn't be <laughs> uh yeah i would i would be spending more time uh, i think trying to do less powerpoints <laughs> and uh, notes and texts what about your fellow systems engineers uh, in the incose community Uh, in other industries other than space do they also build most things uh, internally in their companies or do they use any other kind of tools uh yeah i think it depends on the industry so if you go to automotive where uh, there's a strict standard uh, right uh, auto- automotive uh, um medical um defense um space aerospace they all are driven by a certain need of traceability um well i think aerospace still has the highest standard um but i uh, i think some of these tools started within these companies with the need of having that function or this function you know for example in automotive uh, you have uh, uh, a standard um uh, a standard for ecu testing and those guys really needed a tool to track and assign traceability from testing back towards uh the requirements and so there's a lot of tools that uh basically have automated that uh that part of the job um or uh, serialized that part of the job so uh, i think that is one aspect the other is software uh i think flight software where code coverage is essential it's almost a life and death situation sometimes um and uh and then you have you know auto generated coding um like you know matlab simlink uh, simlink coder hdl uh, where you have auto generated code and then you really need to have specialized tools integrated with uh i mean what i'm talking about is mostly based on verification on the verification side of systems engineering 
when it comes to requirements writing, I think um, software is uh, using a lot of tools such as uh, Jira um, and Confluence. You know, uh, today almost everything is on a CI CD pipeline. So uh, I, I I think there's not a dearth of tools, but I think there's too many tools today, and uh, it has so many subscriptions that uh, uh, I think it's great that GitHub, at least now, after being overtaken by Microsoft, you know, somebody with that perspective has come up and said, I'll build you all these tools and systems. Why do you want to go outside? And uh, I hope they do a better job than Windows for sure. Yeah, and finally, we started having uh, like dedicated DevOps engineers on the teams to guide us through this whole CI/CD. Yeah, I guess everything in the space industry kind of boils down to the fact that we don't really have any standards. I mean, there are CCSDS, ECSS standards, yes, but nothing is as stringent as in the other industries, like you mentioned. You know, the civil aviation or the aerospace, uh, auto auto industry. So yeah, it's gonna be uh, the wild west for a while. In a way, I also like it because uh, that means there's no limits to your imagination, right? There's no limits to what you can accomplish. So, yeah, absolutely. No, I think it, it it depends on if you're interacting with a customer who's from an institution. For example, if you have ISRO or NASA or ESA, then you have to got you got to use their playbook to do things, and um, otherwise, physics is physics, but. <laughs> A verification is so human. Uh, you know, machine doesn't need to really tell you that it can work in all these conditions. It's you as an external entity that needs to prove it. So it's very uh, fascinating that way. I think uh, I think you're going to ask a question in this uh, realm. Some um, I can see that question coming up, but AI will probably hit this industry very hard. Okay, you're reading my mind now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so what's your take on the whole uh, ChatGPT? Because now Valley Space, I mean, uh, since we spoke about Valley Space, they've also incorporated ChatGPT into their uh, tools, right? Okay, I, I know I wasn't aware. That's uh, very interesting. I haven't used it, though. I've just seen their... Um... So you mean to write requirements or... Uh... To elaborate, so I just saw a small demo. I mean, I'm I'm not part of the systems engineering team. I just uh, subscribed to their newsletter. So okay, yeah. But as it's a like a language learning model, I think there is great scope in just uh, of like being very um, specific about um, the conciseness, like the requirements of a requirement, uh, the meta. Uh, requirements. So how do you write requirements? How precise uh, the shall, the should, the will? Um, I think uh, it it will negatively impact the industry, in my opinion. Um, uh, my forecast is that I think there's still an, an element of engineering that is still core uh, human because when you're discussing a project, you still need to an engineer to understand and convert the requirement from function to physics. And that I think a language learning model cannot do, but it will write good homework for you. For example, you know, uh, it's uh, it's a nice way of presenting. 
I think the cornerstone of this area or this discipline is when we will leave text finally. I think requirements writing is text only because humans need to read it. So in that way, I'm actually more AI friendly, where AI <clears throat> should be able to uh, link objects to other objects um, that not completely, uh, say, vanish um, the need for writing of textual requirements, but reduce the amount of textual requirements that exist today. And I think that's what also Valley Space did with these budgets. You know, they removed the need for writing uh, these. So they just became conditions greater than, less than, equal to. And that that's really good. Um, I, I, I know a few people in Nkosi who, who are also leaning that way and some who are not. But I think we need less text than more text to make better software and hardware, both. Uh, and it's just uh, the aspect of somebody who wants to read requirements that you write them in a certain way um, from the fear of being misinterpreted. So that's my take. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah, because I've, well, I've tried, of course, like everybody else, I've tried using ChatGPT to solve some coding problems, but... Yeah, I mean, totally agree. It's it's a it's a very personalized Google search or a search engine, but it's quite it's a bit away because, or at least in the space industry, right? Like especially if you ask it to come up with some driver help you with some driver code, uh, it references a lot of these data sheets, and data sheets again are not uh, standardized at all. Uh, of course, as a systems engineer, I'm, I'm sure you've seen your share of data sheets, and it's that's a completely different nightmare. So. Yeah, it's. Uh, I also feel it's quite some time away before we can actually incorporate ChatGPT confidently and then just base, you know, take decisions based on its output. You definitely need some sort of human who actually knows the subject matter to, again, verify what it says. And Exactly. That's a lot of systems engineering discussion. It's been fun. If space enthusiasts or young professionals want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do so? Uh, the best way would be uh, currently LinkedIn, I would say. Um, I fairly respond quickly if I'm not in the sprint for a review um, <laughs> or uh, attending a conference or flying, uh, you know, somewhere or on a holiday. But yeah, um, and uh, not that I'm huge on social media but i think uh that's the best connectivity right now because uh, uh email is still <laughs> um a very personalized uh, uh thing to give away um yeah but otherwise i mean um linkedin or um, your profile online my presence online is fairly normal and uh, they can also reach out to my um a work email uh, that's on the on the website. Wow, yeah. Yeah, it's been a very, very insightful discussion, uh, Vinayak. You've shared a lot of very fine, very minute details into systems engineering. So now I have a lot of respect for all the systems engineering <laughs> engineers in my team. I'm going to bother them. <laughs> I hope I didn't uh, spoil the name. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. But it's, it's always fascinating to know what really goes on, what are the challenges of your fellow engineers. Yeah, it's, it's been very insightful. Thanks for that. 
No, thank you for having me, Rachan. And uh, I I listened to a few uh, podcasts and uh, yeah, uh, very fascinating, great questions. I hope you get uh, uh, keep getting interesting guests. Uh, and I just wanted to say something on the lines of uh, I think the more non-space people, like general people, uh, that your podcast can reach out to, I think the more uh, this industry, like our industry, will benefit. It's not geeks like us who, you know, I have known about space since childhood, but uh, those who have learned and then, you know, uh, have taken an interest. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having the podcast as well. Yeah, I'm glad you also find it useful. That's exactly the reason I started this podcast in the first place. Because if you know, go by the name, right? It's called Those Space People. So it's kind of trying to provide a perspective on the diverse roles people in the space value chain assume to give a perspective to people outside of it. Because people outside the space industry, they just look at the rockets. You know, you're either an astronaut or someone designing rockets and that's about it. Yeah, I also try to keep it at a very... I mean, sometimes it goes into a lot of details. Of course, when two space people are talking, we kind of... (laughs) Can't help it. Yeah, that happens. But yeah, I try to keep it as as, uh, simple as possible so everyone can follow. But this has been very, very interesting. Thanks again. Always. My pleasure.